Dennis Stewart, last week we talked about the development and the history of Western herbalism. You talked about slippery elm, mm. the herb there as being perhaps the best known herb in the, in Western herbal medicine. Mm. So you want to talk about one of the other herbs mm. that are very much used. Which one is it today? Look, I want to spend some time today, particularly on the herb Echinacea, looking at its history, fascinating history, its remarkable use, and the way in which it's actually been grown recently in Australia. It's interesting that um, we talked a little bit last week about the development, the history of of what's called Western herbalism, and I had an interesting experience um, only yesterday. One of my patients was saying that she had been to a GP and uh, he was interested in... um, the medication that I had prescribed for her respiratory system and wanted to know the herbs that were in it. And I obviously volunteered the herbs that were in it. She took them along and he said to her quite uh, quite surprisingly, but none of these are Chinese herbs. Well, <laughs> I'd just like to reiterate that the Chinese herbalism is one system of herbalism, but Western herbalism is a system also that goes back for 2,000 years, and it's been practised in Australia for many, many, many years, and it has its own remarkable remedies, uh, similar to Chinese medicine, which has its remarkable remedies, but um, I was quite fascinated to think that somehow um, some medical practitioners think um, that herbalism is structured uh, around Chinese herbs. One aspect of it is that Western herbalism, as I spoke about last week, has roots that go way, way back in Europe, way, way back to England, and, of course, in in recent uh, centuries, way, way back to the US. And uh, we spoke last week about slippery elm as being one of the most remarkable remedies in Western herbalism coming from the United States. Uh, And uh, just to refresh listeners, uh, Western herbalism is very much dependent um, on the American herbs, and for a very good reason that, it, as I explained last week, the interchange of ideas and traditions between the early uh, white settlers and the indigenous population of the US led to a flowering of herbalism that saw many of the American herbs embraced by Europeans and become part of what we call Western herbalism. And, and literally, Western herbalism today could not be practised, in my opinion, without the range of American herbs that have now filled it up and made some of the most remarkable possibilities. And Slippery Elm was one of them, but this week I want to say something about probably, um, well, it would be probably better known uh, than um, the the uh, the herb Slippery Elm, although most people have seen Slippery Elm as a, uh, a remarkable food, particularly for the gut with its soothing characteristics. But today... We're going to talk about uh, Echinacea, and we have a lovely shot of up on, on the website. So if you are interested, go to our website and have a look at the, uh, the, the herb there. And that photograph of the herb Echinacea purpurea was in fact taken uh, on Professor Elliot's farm in uh, 99. Um, that's over 20 years ago, I can't believe it when we ran a seminar on his little farm, and that was the photograph that we took. 
we were the first to grow Echinacea purpurea in Australia. Now it's got uh, a lot of uses oh, too, hasn't it? Oh, dear, dear. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is, <laughs> um, I get really fascinated with this. Um, Echinacea in the US, the primary species that was used historically was Echinacea angustifolia. And uh, when I started studying and practicing, that was the only species of Echinacea that was used. The root of Echinacea angustifolia was the primary expression of Echinacea in its medicinal history, which is vast, grew up around that. Uh, somehow an accident happened uh, where the Germans uh, purchased seed for what they thought was Echinacea angustifolia but which proved to be Echinacea purpurea. And that's what's up on the screen on our website now. And unbeknownst to them, it, they thought it was Angustifolia, and they began to develop products, plant products, herbal products, and the Germans are excellent at this. They lead the world. And um, they started producing Echinacea products thinking they were Echinacea Angustifolia. Suddenly, the Americans woke up to what was going on and said, no, you're growing the wrong species. Well, the Germans... They're not to be beaten on this. They developed then a product uniquely coming from the German understanding of the chemistry of Echinacea purpurea, and they began to use the whole herb, the flowering tops, the root and the leaves of Echinacea purpurea. And today, probably, Echinacea purpurea is now the basis of most European herbal medicine products, and most of my lecturing these days is on Echinacea purpurea, um, which has developed, even in medical circles on, in the continent, um, quite a lot of, um, of reputation and benefits that, that we can talk about. So fascinating history of, of a mistake, mistaken identity, which led to a proliferation of possibilities for Echinacea centred around the Echinacea purpurea. And uh, it was that species that Cliff and myself grew uh, over 20 years, 30 years ago now. That I mean, was on the Central Coast? On the, yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Um, I, I mention Cliff's name periodically because I miss him greatly. He, um, went, he was Professor of Physics at this university and when he retired, he sought me out. He had a little farm in Peach Orchard Road, he and his dear wife, Nairi. Typical New Zealanders. They could grow anything and you know, I could talk for hours. But he sought me out. Uh, studied under me, became a member of the National Herbalist Association and eventually his patron. And then we started growing Echinacea. New Zealanders are very good at growing things. I've got to hand that to him. Very good at everything, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> and interestingly, it was the New Zealanders uh, that uh, took up the, the challenge to grow Echinacea. Uh, and disappointingly, uh, disappointingly, even though I gave seminars on growing Echinacea all around Australia... As far as I'm aware, there's been no serious uh, taking up of that challenge. Now, I stand contradiction, and I will uh, throw a challenge out to, to all growers that might be listening to this. That this is an excellent time to think about cash cropping of herbs, particularly the American herbs, and particularly echinacea. We're talking about Western herbalism, and in particular the herb uh, echinacea, and we've talked a bit about its history now, but yes, um, yes. what about its uses? Its uses okay. How can it best be used? Oh, look, one could talk so much about uh, this herb. The, uh, the modern findings of it have led to its being used both 
as oral medication as also, and also topical medication. But essentially, my, I use the herb mainly as a herb to promote better resistance to infection. And if we look at the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia and the monograph that it has on echinacea, we'll find that, amongst other things, it's referred to as being an antiviral agent. Now, now obviously, this has limitations. It doesn't uh, purport to be anything other than a remedy with potential to use in some of the common viruses that we experience. But it is called up in the literature for primarily um, conditions of the upper respiratory tract. Uh, not just there, but primarily there, so that um, in, in treating kids, for instance, that get uh, recurrent uh, conditions of the upper respiratory tract, uh, snotty noses, um, block sinuses, uh, glue ear, going from one cold to another cold, so to speak, in my experiences, uh, based on the, the knowledge that, that I learnt many years ago and that I still hold in my old head, that it's one of the most useful devices for building up resistance to recurring infections, particularly viral infections, of the upper respiratory tract. Uh, it's not only used for kids, but it's a remedy that most herbalists would think about for addressing chronic recurring episodes of sinusitis. Again, I'm emphasising the upper respiratory tract. Uh, very few of us would treat recurring viral infections particularly without drawing on the use of the herb echinacea. So when we talk about it being used for infection, uh, primarily viral infections, but not just that. It also has some usefulness as a general immune stimulant in dealing with infections per se, sometimes uh, a little bit more seriously. For instance, a good example of where echinacea is used is where you have chronic uh, conditions such as boils, carbuncles, wretched things that the doctor rightly treats with necessary antibiotics. But unfortunately, these things can come in crops and one antibiotic after an antibiotic still doesn't wipe them out, so to speak. Uh, this remedy, Echinacea, is remarkable for its ability to address that sort of scenario where you have recurring infections of the skin, particularly, as I've said, boils, carbuncles, etc., which involve usually as the, the staph um, bacteria, here it has a remarkable propensity to be able to deal with that sort of situation. Tonsillitis is remarkable. As a younger practitioner in younger days in Gosford, I used to see a lot of children uh, with recurring tonsillitis uh, who uh, were trying through their doctor to not have to have tonsillectomies in, in the literature and in my experience, the use of echinacea can frequently be something that sees the tonsils uh, develop better resistance to infection and lessen the need for tonsillectomies. Listeners now must be starting to get a bit of an idea of where this herb fits into Western herbalism. Recurring chronic infections, the upper respiratory tract, but also uh, infections of the skin. So that's just a start 
on a, on a remedy like this, one could talk for hours. But wait, there's more. There's more to come. There's more to come. <laughs> and another that might actually surprise you. Is... Indeed, indeed. Um, so we've talked about echinacea, Dennis Stewart, as, as a means of combating chronic infection in sure, particular. Sure, sure. Um, but what's the other perhaps surprising <laughs> use? Well, again, it has many uses, but it is one of the most prolific uh, producers of nectar and pollen and as such it's a primary source of honey and uh, when Cliff and I were growing it on the central coast honey was one of the products that we derived from the small acreage that he had and the reason I'm mentioning this uh, on the program today is that echinacea is so easy to grow and I encourage listeners who are interested in herbs to go to their nursery and get some young echinacea uh, plants. They're available now. They grow very, very easily, and they'll flower into a beautiful um, cone flower that you can see on the website, and uh, that becomes just a feeding ground for bees. Now, um, I was watching a program on television the other night which spoke about the dilemma that's now facing uh, particularly the Western world, where m many insects, including bees, have been wiped out. There are various uh, suspicions as to what may have caused this, but um, the general feeling is that it's a, a combination of things, perhaps modern insecticides, environmental factors. But interestingly, uh, towards the end of the program, I think an English farmer was uh, interviewed and who was aware of this dilemma, the dilemma facing the production of honey and bees, and suggested a very sensible thing, and that was that we should all should should take responsibility now for planting, planting uh, flowers and trees that will produce bee fodder, that will produce the pollen and the nectar potential that bees need uh, for our survival. And already uh, in his property, um, he is uh, growing. Uh, amongst his other crops, rows and rows of plants, uh, flowering plants, that will produce honey. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. An echinacea is so easily grown, so easily grown, and it could easily be taken up by farmers, small, uh, small uh, landowners who uh, grow vegetables and other things, even in the hunter. It could even be put in as a, a crop. Uh, I th in the vineyards, for instance, I notice. Uh, between the rows they're all nice and tidy but I thought to myself um, good opportunity here to encourage the, the the people that own the vineyards to plant some echinacea between the rows of the of the vines to give beauty of course to the environment as it always is beautiful but also to start to run with this idea of taking responsibility for encouraging the survival of the bee and using a plant like echinacea with its remarkable medicinal properties, using it also as a potential plant to take seriously, to grow, to grow, to grow. So listeners, go to your local <laughs> nursery, make a, go there straight away, say Dennis sent you, and, and get hold of some of these, put them in. I'm serious. It's remarkably easy to grow and uh, remarkable for the ability to feed the bees. So would some of the good properties, the infection-fighting properties, come through in the honey, Dennis? They do. Now, this is a, I could talk about this all day. You've really got me moving on this, Jane, because, again, in certain parts of the world, they are now using honey 
uh, and particular honeys to address disease situations. They're in some parts of the, of the world, they're actually feeding uh, bees the essences of some of the herbs in order then to market that herb as being particularly useful for a particular condition. So it is fair to say that honey um, collected from certain medicinal herbs has a potential carryover effect. Mm. And it's something that fascinates me as an extension of the beekeeping industry and a value-adding potential that is to claim the honey as embodying uh, some of the potential of the plant on which it's been grown. So echinacea, for instance, a farmer growing that could legitimately claim, in my opinion, that the honey that he produced had potential to carry over into its chemistry some of the echinacea possibilities. Nalian rang up a little earlier. She's yes. not on air. I mean, she's yes. not on the line still. Yes. But she wanted to know if you're thinking of taking echinacea mm-hmm. as a preventive, yes. Yes. what kind of dosage would you okay. be looking at? Leanne, it very much depends upon um, what form you're using. But, for instance, you have frequently heard me refer to the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia of 1983. That is basically the the Bible of modern uh, Western herbalism. The monograph in Echinacea in in that book suggests a dose range of 0.5 to 1 mil of what's called the fluid extract. Now, the fluid extract is usually the most common a liquid rendition of the herb, a good uh, herbalist, herbal dispensary, pharmacy, or even a good health food store that stocks liquid echinacea would have it probably, or I would think in a liquid extract form, the dose range 0.5 to 1 for a prophylactic dose or preventative dose, half a mil of the fluid extract taken a couple of times a day and as I say to my patients and students, if a condition starts to assert itself, the dose then can be pushed up to that one mil dosage that's in the pharmacopoeia. A good question, Leanne. Now, uh, Joan has rung in from Cary Bay. Hello, Joan. You've um, you've got a, a recent diagnosis, and uh, it's a condition called what is it? Lichen Lichen planus. Lichen planus. Yes. And yes, Dennis. Hi, Dennis. How are you doing? Got, good, thanks. I was good. just wondering if there's anything that would help me with this condition. Okay. How how advanced is it, Joan? Uh, well, I've had a biopsy done yes. of the vulva, and yeah. uh, that's what's come, come up. So yeah. at the moment, I'm just using a cream. Yeah. It's a prescribed cream, but yeah. uh, I'm just wondering whether there was something more natural that I could take okay. or help. Look, um, there is a cream called Vaginol. Yep. Now, it's not a common cream, um, and it would be... Um, I'm being delicate in what I, what I mentioned here. It would not be... Um, something that you'd purchase just over the counter. Oh, but, okay. Um, the best thing to do, I would suggest in your case, is later on um, to, to ring my rooms and I could give you more information on it. But essentially it's a topical application with a small amount of, of tea tree oil in it, a very oh, small okay. amount, which um, for many of my patients with this condition gives great relief from the itch. Okay. And that's probably one of the most uh, irritating aspects of it. Yes, it is. Uh, And then, you know, it's just a bit of a worry too because can it lead to a cancer though if it's not treated? Oh, look, I think this is where your gynecologist probably better better qualified. But as as an agent that has given relief 
to some ladies that I've prescribed this to over the years, it seems to, to help. Um, but I wouldn't claim it to be a cure. It may, however, uh, be useful in alleviating some of the symptoms. Vaginal cream. All the very best with that, Joan. And Lynn has rung in from Cameron Park. Now, you've got a comment or a question about echinacea, Lynn? Yes, I do. Um, Ten years ago, I went to a dermatologist, um, dermatologist that um, I was getting, look, I'm 64 now, yes. and this has been on for five years, yes. ten years, and yes. they gave me a cream tr- called Retrieve. Yes cream and it did work for a while but then I listen to your show every week and I bought um, a tablet which involves echinacea um, zinc and yes. vitamin C uh, yes, yes. and something else and do you know I do not have any of those lumps under the skin yeah. that I used to have yeah. and um, so retrieve cream it was quite expensive and I had to get it from mostly a compounding chemist but again, on the bees, I grow banksia. We're in Cameron Park, yeah, and it's not yeah. a—it's only a—it's only a yard. Yes. And I grow banksia yes. and bottle brush yeah, and a, a lot of flowers. Yes. And do you know those? When they're flowering, you can't put your hand in there without <laughs> getting touched with the bee. Yeah. And I also get. Um, honey from Westfall's End yes. because as the crow flies I think I'm within five kilometres yes. of the man up there yeah. and and I, I'm finding that the honey sometimes even rubbing on I get very badly bruised um, yes. which is what but I'm finding the honey rubbing on is helping with the bruising that causes from bumps and so forth but I've already and also just found out there is a native bee it's a very yes. small one correct and it is in my roses yes. and my alyssum yes. of and it stays there for days weeks yes. I don't know if it ever leaves the place <laughs> but I've noticed it and I do believe in honey as um I'm going to give my granddaughter a small jar of the bee honey from there and say maybe put half a teaspoon in her yogurt or something because I think the antibodies and the anti-inflammatories in real honey, not what you buy off the shelf, has got some medicinal purposes. Oh, look, I I would uh, totally agree with you. I think that uh, the more we look into the possibility of honey, uh, particularly pure honey, uh, the, the more, the more we become impressed with its wide-ranging therapeutic possibilities. And I would like to think uh, that uh, part of my work over many years and even what I've said on radio over many years has led to a greater, a greater awareness of honey being used not just as food but as a medicinal agent. And you, you would have heard me talk uh, many times about uh, the, the honey ointment that I developed and used and the way in which it's literally saved people's limbs as a result of addressing some of the serious ulcerative lesions. So you keep going with your fascination and interest in, in bees and keep growing plants uh, that encourage the bees to come around. If you can ever get from your nursery what's called a fiddle tree or sometimes it's called fiddle wood, fiddle tree, you will not find anywhere, and I'm a bit tongue-in-cheek on this, but this is one of the most prolific trees I've ever seen in its production of blossom and its, and its potential to, to support 
uh, foraging bees for weeks and weeks and weeks. I've been so impressed with it about 25 years ago, I planted quite a large number of them on my property in the Hunter Valley, and uh, I'm sure that they have led to uh, bees becoming more active on that property. Listeners, remember the name, Fiddlewood or Fiddle Tree, a lovely uh, a tree that's not too big, goes well in, in the backyard or even the front yard, and uh, in a couple of seasons it will produce a beautiful, fragrant a spike of flowers which will literally cause the bees to never leave you. It's so nice when mm. you can have a, uh, a food and a food that does you good yeah. in the one oh, product, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that lovely? What a, what a good program today, Jay. Uh, this is 2 and RFM's Health Naturally. Now, we have Moira on the line. She's rung in from Maryville. And you've got something, a comment or a question about echinacea. Moira? Oh, yes, indeed. Hello, Moira. Uh, thank you. For... Oh, day, Dennis. Thanks for taking the call. Pleasure, pleasure. Um, just two things I've got. One's about the gar- gardening issue. Um, I did buy a plant that I believe was Echinacea purpura, so yes. expecting a purple coneflower, yes. um, in the very young state, and it was tagged that. But when, I, when it actually grew, it grew quite tall and it had a yellow flower, and it turns out that there is a, a species um, that's called Echinacea paradoxa, Yes. Um, also known as yellow cone flower. Yes, that's correct. It wasn't what, it wasn't what I wanted. But the, the the tricky thing about that too is that if the plant in its young phases, um, it looked like Jerusalem artichoke. Yes. And actually when it's grown tall and it's grown the flower, the flower has got like the width of a small sunflower across it. It doesn't actually have the cone in the middle. So I think what's happened is that this has been a mislabeled plant and it's actually a Jerusalem artichoke because it's got the little rhizomes down the oh, bottom as well. I think you're right because any yeah. any member of the, the echinacea uh, genus would would have a cone flower. Right. Um, uh, there yeah. are There are numerous species of echinacea. You mentioned echinacea paradoxica. Uh, there is also echinacea nevada, echinacea angustifolia. Now, they all, generally speaking... Uh, and also one that I was particularly fascinated in, and I actually grew at Rothbury, Echinacea pallida, uh, on which I wrote a paper in which I argued that the reputation for Echinacea angustifolia was really based on Echinacea pallida. But I won't go into that. Pallida grows very easily, very uh, long rag doll type leaves. It has a cone. It has a cone flower. My point is that I would have suspicion about any plant that purported to be echinacea that didn't have the typical cone from which many of the ray florets are generated on our website. You'll see what I mean. Yeah. So I don't well, think, I, I, I don't think I you've got echinacea. Yes. Yeah. And, didn't uh, know until it flowered. Yeah. Uh, well, but, I, but I'm still looking at identification and I'd actually like to send you a photograph yes. of this because it's just started to sprout again. Yeah, I'd do that. Um, I'd be delighted to see it because yeah. uh, this, is a, this is an area that I've been fascinated in. I literally, uh, with Cliff many decades ago, we started something with, with Echinacea and the Americans came out to actually look at what we were doing. I couldn't believe that we were actually growing it so well. But I've also been interested in wanting to get other of the species um, going as, as well as purpurea. So if you have anything that you've got that can further that, please uh, send it to my rooms at, at Alma Road, New Lambton, and I'd be delighted okay. to have a look at it. Excellent. Okay. Mm. And 
just the second part of the yes. question is about the angustifolia. Yes, yes. And I've chosen to use angustifolia yes. in a mi- uh, mixture that yes. I'm just um, making for my daughter with a, yes. with it, who actually has serious allergies and also, um, you know, all the sinusitis stuff, all that, um, but also to the point of anaphylaxis, which they're calling idiopathic. Mm-hmm. And the reason I've done that is because I'm looking at using the root rather than the flower because if okay. she's got all those other sensitivities to... Yes. To um, pollens, etc. Yes, yes, yes. Then, so therefore, coming back to the angustifolia, yes. what can you tell me about that in terms of its um, vigilance as a, as a good herbal remedy? Oh well, look. As I said, the the whole reputation uh, of, ec- of echinacea was founded on echinacea angustifolia, which is uh, still uh, in America the primary. Um, species of echinacea that's used. Uh, I developed a product called triechinacea that had angustifolia pallida and purpurea in it. I think think the the root of angustifolia um, is probably better in your situation when you're talking about allergenicity because there's something in the literature that suggests that the whole herb incorporating the ray florets and the flower may, I say may, uh, not be ideal for people that are sensitive uh, to to various allergens. Now, I haven't seen too much evidence of that, but I still use angustifolia for a lot of the traditional indications for which the herb was prescribed. I use it also for some indications uh, for for purpurea that the Europeans developed. But um, angustifolia has has got a, I've got a soft spot for it, the problem, right. ba- the problem basically is uh, it is nowhere near as easy to grow as purpurea. Um, and as far as I'm aware, the bulk of angustifolia is still imported from the United States. If you can get angustifolia going, let me know. We can, we can do something with it. All right, I'll see what I can manage. Okay. But, um, yeah, yeah, I keep in my touch. from Martin's, um, from um, um, Newton's Pharmacy. Oh, yeah, yes. In, in Sydney because of their long-term reputation as good suppliers. I, I, I know uh, Martin's uh, Newton's Pharmacy. I knew the old Newton. That's going back probably 50 years uh, the winding staircase that you used to have to go down to their dispensary. Oh. I knew it well. I can still smell it. Oh, Dennis, that's wonderful. <laughs> now, just a little comment. Thank you, Moira, for all that. That's great. Uh, Lynn rang in again from Cameron Park, not here, but she's wondering how, if you're growing echinacea in your yeah. own backyard, yeah. how you can process it. Can you, in oh, fact, look, process you can, you can it pr- yourself? You can process any herb. Um, if, if you're going to um, concentrate on the whole herb, what you would do is uh, sensitively uh, pull it from the ground and then you'd have to ensure that it was perfectly washed. Now, commercial uh, processes do it in a, in a rotating uh, washery similar to uh, uh, washing potatoes and carrots. But if you're doing it, uh, probably with a plant or so, you can laboriously, laboriously clean it up to ensure that you've got as most of the dirt from around the roots uh, not so much if you're doing the aerial parts, the, the leaf and the flower. They're, they're pretty uh, clean of everything. But essentially, you'd wash it, make sure it was clean, and then you'd carry out the next process, which would be to, to dry it. And what you would do there is probably separate the root from the aerial parts because the root would take a, a, a considerable period of time to be completely dehydrated 
whereas the, the leaf or the aerial part uh, would become dehydrated fairly quickly. So you'd separate the two, dry your leaf and your, uh, your flower, uh, put it aside until the root is also completely dehydrated. And then what you would do, you'd get a device that would allow you to initially have it cut, that is cut into small pieces. Some people do it with a, with a mincing machine. Others do it laboriously with seconders. That's really laborious, but if you're doing one blood, it's okay. And then when you've reached that stage, you can then pulverise it, put it through any device that you have, a coffee grinder, an old coffee grinder that not, that's not being used. It can form the agent that you then take the dried herb to and reduce it to a powder, and that powder then becomes the basis of echinacea plants or echinacea medications. Not that dif uh, difficult to do. Uh, Cliff and I used to do it on his property with his hammer mill. I, I still have his hammer mill, uh, which I treasure. But if you're doing one plant, pretty easy job. Um, but I wonder wonder why you'd worry when you could probably uh, go and get a good echinacea product from your good health food store with a lot less labour involved. But it, it's good that you're interested. And I suppose um, echinacea, yeah, honey. Use it for honey. honey yeah, producing. use it for honey. Why not? Why and not? speaking of honey, Jan has rung in from Curry Curry and you've got something to say on honey as well, Jan. Yes, I um, get um, cellulitis in my legs. Yes, I know it well. And um, one time when I was in hospital, the doctor ordered Manuka honeybee yeah, put on it. How about that? Well, I can tell you a story there too. My dear mother, uh, years ago, ripped her leg open. She had used too much topical cortisone on her leg over so many years, and she ripped it from basically ankle to knee. Uh, it was She was hospitalised. I won't go into where, which hospital. But the stitches would not take because the skin was so fragile and she had a gaping wound that wouldn't respond to anything that was offered. She then suggested to the uh, good doctors that she be allowed to use honey. And it was the honey that cured her leg and which till basically the day she died, she boasted about uh, the way in which honey um, for information from her son <laughs> she fixed up her leg and a huge scar but beautifully cleaned up and I've seen that happen so frequently Excellent and mm. Lynn uh, from Cameron Park also uses honey for sores, all sorts of sores and dips her cuttings yep. before she plants them in honey and that is good too. Now Jackie from Waratah has rung in Jackie you've got a question about echinacea and using it for animals Hello, Jackie. Hi. Yeah, I'm just wondering if, if you would be able to use it on a, a dog. My daughter's dog has skin allergies. He, he has always had them. At the moment, it's particularly bad. He's been on antibiotics probably a couple of months now, okay. and nothing's really helping. Well, look, I, um, I'll, I'll be quick because we've just about run yep. out of time. First of all, what I'd suggest you do is run it past your vet because yeah, yeah. Uh, what is sometimes useful for a human maybe not useful for an animal, although I haven't found sure. too much evidence of that. I personally think that it it, it could be useful, but again, yeah. dosage and preparation would yeah. be the crucial issue. Most, sure. of, most vets these days would be using some form of natural medicine. Have a discussion yeah. with your vet. I think it could yeah. be useful, but dosage and the form that you would give it would be something that your vet would be best advised on. 
Sure, lovely. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank thanks you. for your call, Jackie. Well, we've had some great uh, calls, yeah, and uh, there've been lots of topics brought up yes, as well. Yes, but we'll yes. we'll talk about them another time. Why not? And, um, and honey not? is such a good thing. Why not? In our last minute, would you like to sum up the beauties of echinacea, Dennis Stewart? The beauties of echinacea are that it is beautiful, as our website shows, and it is excellent for building up resistance to recurring upper respiratory tract infections and very useful for stubborn skin conditions of a pustular nature that keep occurring despite antibiotic medication. Go echinacea and with a bit of luck we'll see a lot more of it flowering around Let's hope our the whole region. district will know that this program was responsible for it, Jane. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.